Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SEP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Zach Darnell. I recently attended a conference in Cleveland, Ohio called Industry, a product conference. It's mostly around software product development, product management, but kind of goes beyond software. And I had the pleasure of meeting our two guests for this show, Caitlin Renner and Tracy Cantrude. Both of these women are product managers at a company called FBS. Now, if you've ever bought a home from a real estate agent and they send you a link with a bunch of houses that fit what you're looking for, you may have been using part of the FBS platform. They're effectively an MLS. There's a few of these out in the marketplace, but for the most part, it's around enabling real estate agents to browse, list, and show off houses to their prospective customers. What was most interesting to me in chatting with Caitlin and Tracy is the fact that FBS has been around for over 30 years and started printing physical books that prospective buyers would go through to browse homes. This is back when houses wouldn't sell in 12 hours before they got listed. So it's been a really cool journey to see how they've gone from a very manual printed company to now a very digital company. This company has been through quite the transition in its time, and it was fascinating to learn how some of the impacts or things within their printed business have actually influenced some of their software products even still today. It was really encouraging to hear how a company like this has traversed some of those challenges and transitioning into a digital product company. So if you find yourself in a similar seat or are just interested by stories like this, this episode might give you some insights. Either way, it was an interesting conversation, so I hope you enjoy. So, Tracy and Caitlin, we met at the industry conference a few weeks ago, and we talked about some stuff, and it would have been fun to have recorded that conversation. So we're going to do our best to reenact our conversation from a few weeks ago and maybe expand on it a little bit. Yeah. So I appreciate you guys spending some time with me to uh, kind of talk a little bit about your experience and some of the journey that FBS has been on for a little while. So to kick us off, Tracy, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. I'm Tracy Cantrude. I have been at FBS for almost three years now. Been a product manager for about six, pretty much always working in B2B staff products. And Caitlin, would you mind doing the same? Yeah, I'm Caitlin Renner. I have actually been with FBS for about eight years now, going on nine. When I started with FBS, I was actually in marketing and then kind of helped build that department from the ground up. And then the last few years, when I was in marketing, I transitioned over to product marketing. And that's kind of where I fell in love with product management. Then I jumped ship over to product about a year and a half ago, kind of found my true love calling there. And I work as a product manager on our FlexMOS platform with a core focus on our core experience of search. Awesome. Newer to the product development than Tracy, only about a year and a half in now. Okay. But you've been at FBS, so you understand the, you know, the business and the market. And so you've got some experiences there. Yep. Okay. So one of the things that I would love to just kind of dive right into, I loved how you guys talked about FBS has been around for f- almost 40 years. We're right mm-hmm. at it. Yep. 
about 44. 44. Oh my gosh, even even older than I thought. So back in the 80s, and I would assume 90s, in the real estate world, you produced and sold physical books of, I'm going to call them flip books, but that's probably the wrong way to think about it, of listings of houses. Yep. Yes. That's how the company started. Mm-hmm. And the sales channel is through the real estate associations that exist across the U.S. Right. So in every market in the United States, usually that can be organized different ways. It can be by a city or region or whatever. Um, so the real estate agents and brokers in that particular area are all organized to associations or MLSs. Sometimes they're called that. That is who we sell software. Ooh, MLS. So as a consumer of these things, that is like the site that I can think of that I think we got little reports from our real estate agent the last time that we bought a house. Yep. Typically, your agent and broker will work in that software every day. And often when they communicate with you as a buyer, they're using some version of that MLS site to send you so you can view properties or search for properties. It's the software that they use. Okay. That makes total sense. And roughly, do you know how long ago FBS as a company started to transition away from the physical product and now into the digital one? We actually launched the physical software in 1999, but it was about like 20 some years later. So we were founded as a company in 1978. And, you know, that's when we started selling the books and doing the books. And those were sent out, you know, every week or so back in the day when we were more analog. And then when we transitioned, you know, in 1999 over to that, they actually existed alongside one another for a handful of years there. Yeah, for a long time, actually. 14 years. Oh, my. So into the like 2000 teens, Mm -hmm. there were still physical books going out. That's fascinating. For me to even think, because I guess in recent history, we all know that the housing industry has been just bonkers and houses have been selling for in, in hours. So if I'm waiting on a book to go out once a week, <laughs> I would have been seven days too late in theory. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. But there are still things that exist about the you know physical like layout I'm, I'm going to say layout of an individual house's listing. So when I, you know, I got the, you know, here are 14 houses that meet your criteria. And when you select it, you know, th- the format of that, like one pager that oftentimes still sits out in an open house, that is still formatted largely based on those old physical books, correct? Yeah. So we have like um, data structures that still exist in our system that are sort of set up for books. So if you think about a property description, so when the real estate agent writes about the home and market it in a way for a book, they had a set number of characters that they could do for that. 200, 300 characters, 500 characters. Before Twitter existed. Right, exactly. (laughs) And so that was fixed as that. And they could only write that much. That actually still exists in our data structure. We do a lot of things to like, mask that now or make it longer and things like that. But our data structure still thinks that a property description is like 500 characters. Oh, interesting. And today, you know, in the age of the internet, is the options for what you would want to use to sell a house are basically infinite. So even things like videos and virtual tours like that didn't exist. 
at that time. So our system didn't really recognize that. So those are kind of like, or even sort of 50 photos. All of that is really, we have sort of this modulized approach because originally like the core system was this, and then we have like some add-ons here. Our system's really mixed in terms of its age. So parts of it are, parts of it are really old. The part that I work on is really old. We're doing a modernization effort on that right now. It's listing ad edit. So that's, you know, putting in the information. And then there are portions of our system that are a lot, a lot newer, like new, new, new. So we've done this sort of like migration in place kind of effort. So our system is a mix of old and new. That's such a common thing that I think a lot of my folks see with a lot of our customers who've been around for a long time that started to move into the digital landscape maybe 20 years ago or so, even less time than that, that are starting to really have to think about, okay, how do we carry this forward? How do we build software in a more quote unquote modern way? Do we upgrade? Do we rip and replace? Do we build alongside? How do we modernize, you know, in your words, the systems? What are some of the things that y'all have seen in the last few years as far as like challenges and opportunities? You've got systems, I would imagine, that still exist today that were built in some ways, like the, like the data scheme for the description 23 years ago. What, if, what, what challenges have you guys faced here in the last few years? Where could I start with that? <laughs> so you didn't know I was going to give you such a big question. It's really challenging. <laughs> In a way, you're a victim of your own success. Like your customers really love your product. They love how it is. They bought you based on that. And so you've got to be thoughtful about what you're changing in the product. So we've had situations where we've made a big effort to sunset things and then had to deal with that backlash from our customers of like, well, you're taking away from something from me and that's really difficult to do. You need the support of your organization really strongly behind you. And we've done that and sort of paid the price in a way. There's lots of ways to approach legacy. Like you could do migration in place, which is basically what we've done. Our general approach to migration of our product has been take each sort of like module reimagine it and still make it connect to everything, but still reimagine it. So hopefully within that, you're taking out things that are not relevant anymore. You're making it look modern and fresh. For us, even, you know, software practices 20 years ago are a lot different than they are today. So having a modern API that drives your front end, that are all things that we've got to do. And we've done it in a modulized approach. Other companies have done it differently. I guess I couldn't see how that might affect how successful that might be. So for example, let's say you're going to take a modernization approach and you're just going to do everything fresh in a new system. We'll leave old, leave the old behind. I couldn't speak to how successful that is because that's never been our approach. Our approach has always been migration within the product. It's very challenging to do because you as the product person, as the development team, as people building the product, you want to get rid of waste, you want to make it easier, you want to make it more streamlined. But at the same time, you have to convince your customers that this part is no longer needed, or you have to get everybody on board, which takes time. So can be very challenging. Well, and I would imagine, yeah, and you guys have a very mature product, a very mature business. I'm sure you've got customers that have been around for maybe almost as long as the companies existed today. 
And, you know, Caitlin, coming from product marketing, this just dawned on me. Some of the things that are still maybe, I'll say, similar or at least inspired by the original books and how it appears and the user experience from a digital perspective are in line, maybe in large part because your customers have grown to expect the visual display of those one-pagers a certain way. And that's hard to break. Yep, absolutely. How has that influenced maybe some of the product marketing side? I know you've moved on, but I'm curious to tap into that last experience. It's kind of more about gradually introducing changes. So, you know, when I was in product marketing, we still kind of ship things, you know, every couple of weeks. So just gradually introducing them to those experiences. It's very interesting being on this side now, being able to see like the full story. So I think coming from marketing, that's something I always try to key in on. Like, what's the story and how much can we tell at the beginning to let them know what's coming, but in a consumable way. So that's always a message we try to craft there just so they can see where it's going, but also know we're going to help them every step of the way and introduce them as we introduce those new changes or enhancements. That makes total sense. Can either of you think back in the last few years to when you've had to navigate changing maybe a paradigm or a feature within the product that your customers were used to, to where that might've been hard, but it's like, hey, customer, we really think this would be better for you. And here's a new thing. I know it's a shift in your expectation. Has that happened here in recent time? Yeah. I mean, we're getting ready to do one right now. Ooh, perfect. <laughs> well, it's basically, yeah. <laughs> Caitlin and I are tasked with very similar projects right now. And like some of our biggest experiences in the products that are still not completely on the new yet, we need to get them all, all up to date and modernized. Yeah. So on the search side right now, we kind of have a goal by the end of 2023 or that date could change there. <laughs> but sometime within the next year, we want to take the core experience of search. So, you know, what the agents go in, if your home buyer is working with an agent, you know, they're setting up those texts that are sent to you or those, you know, emails that are sent to you with your subscription is kind of what they call it. So what are the home buyers looking for in that criteria? So the whole agent search experience and what they interact with and use every day. We're kind of re-envisioning all of it at the moment. And we're going to go about it piece by piece. So we're currently focused on like the search filters. And we're going to be introducing that new experience in a gradual way, kind of like we talked about to get people used to it, where we're going to insert, you know, a toggle sort of thing where they can kind of try it out. Probably it'll end up being more of a beta experience there, but we can continue to deliver value, enhance our mobile side of things, and also bring it to our desktop platform in their most used area there, but in a gradual way. And then we'll continue to add to that toggle experience over the next years and then eventually get to the portion of, you know, where we're going to sunset that retire that old search experience. So that'll be our, our new challenge ahead here. <laughs> That's a smart idea. You know, this idea of being able to, you know, turn on the new, leave on the old. And hopefully over time, you get more and more users trying, trying to incentivize or encourage them to try the new thing. That's a great strategy. I think you need a combination of those like carrots and then eventually the stick will come and you need that buy-in from the from the MLS. So like many companies, we're in a situation where the people that buy us are maybe there's the end users that have have to use it. They have to use the the software. Our buyers are not each individual person does not choose to use our product where the buyers are separate. So you need the buy-in from those people that are on the enterprise level, the organization level, to say like, yep, we're going to support this migration. Even you need them to 
be championing this change as well. You're selling into like the association folks, and then there's compelled use to all of the agents from there. I would imagine there's a little bit of uh, maybe political capital, if I can be a little political for a moment, with the folks that run the association kind of make some of those decisions and their users, where if their users get a little too unhappy, that might be a bad thing for them. Oh, for sure. So I'd imagine it's a little bit of both. How much is your product focus on the consumer side of things versus the agent side? So me as an actual buyer or a customer to an agent, I would imagine it's mostly tailored to the real estate agents themselves. I would say it's tailored to both of them. I mean, we obviously have our agent's core area of search, but without the buyer side working or the consumer side working there, you know, that would be a broken piece. <laughs> I would say they're definitely core focus there for each. Yeah, it's interesting to be supporting the enterprise, which is the MLS, and then supporting the business of the agents and brokers, and then also the consumers between like these multiple levels of really kind of competing interests at times. Like agents and brokers, they want to look the best. They want to be competitive. And the MLS as an organization is sort of flattening that. Their goal is cooperation. Everybody has the same chances or the rules are all the same across. So really interesting having these kind of competing expectations, really. That's a good point. Who wins? The MLS. Typically, it's the, <laughs> the ones that decide to write the checks. But that's a really good point because if you've got agents that are griping about a lot of things, that's not easy to manage and support. How do y'all as an organization, if you don't mind me asking, organize maybe the focal areas of your product teams? So is it a product team or a product organization represents the MLS, a product team organizes around the agents, a product team organizes around the consumer, or is it more functional areas of your platform? Yeah, it's kind of around our core experiences. So Tracy and I are both on the FlexMLS platform. She has an emphasis on the listings, you know, the ad edit, and then I'm on the search side of things. So we're both on for the agent side there, which also covers the MLS administration. But then I also have a focus on the consumer side. So that portal experience is also under me currently. And then Tracy has another product for Flowplan. You could talk to that one a little bit. So we're sort of organized based on expert experience all up and down the channel, I guess you could say. Even though Caitlin has consumer and agent and blah, 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 like those are all search. Home buyers are searching. Agents are searching. Like those are all search. Mine is more about listing data, so people putting in information, editing that information. One of our products is floor plan creation app, and that is gathering information about the property. So that's kind of where kind of organized in sort of these. You know, I think about somebody like um, maybe Etsy or one of their subsidiaries, which is Reverb. Reverb focuses just on like audio equipment and audio gear. I believe that they've got a split around one focal area for the product teams is the buyer side and one is the seller side. So it sounds like you guys are more around capability and you've got to take into consideration every persona within that channel. Are there things that you guys have learned just as a company over the years? Because I would imagine the books that used to be produced up until maybe nine years ago or so was more tailored towards the agents, potentially. I don't know. That's the assumption I'm making. And what things have you guys learned over the years of trying to think about, well, now we have to take into consideration the the buyers. We're going to take into consideration the MLS needs or the, the organizational needs. 
as far as how you organize your teams, how you actually build software, some of the modern product techniques. I think of something like a hooked model, for example, which is how do I create a loop of use within a product? The product organization within FDS is nine years old or so, so. So you think about like how we've really evolved. I think something really interesting about FDS, I don't know if every organization is like this. I don't think it is. Our our CEO is particularly interested in innovation and drives it and is all about adopting new practices, very supportive of people trying different ways of doing things. I think prior to even just a couple of years ago, our product organization was it was really tactical. It wasn't really building expertise. I mean, we really wanted people that could work in any area, like they could go from thing to thing. And although we would come up with strategic plans every year, it was really hard to those when like every product organization, you have fire drills, you have coming up and saying, this needs to be done now, this needs to be done now, this needs to be done now. And as a product organization had a lot of whiplash and not people that had built expertise in a particular area so they could go in and like make effective decisions about a particular piece of the software because they didn't work in a particular thing all that long. And like many enterprise software situations, the coverage of our software is vast. It's huge, tons of features, you know, being over 20 years old, there's lots there. So more recent stuff has been organizing us around sort of like those capability verticals kind of. And then just last in the last year, we've adopted continuous discovery habits by Teresa Torres. And we've used that on our total organization. So they are company invested in putting about half of our development team, our product team, our entire product team through a company level training on that. And we came out of that and started doing our company planning basically around opportunity solution trees. Because like understanding as a company, like what are our business drivers and like how does that lead down to what outcomes are we looking for? And then how do those company outcomes lead our product outcomes and sort of making the connection up and down the tree structure, that opportunity solution tree structure to understand what's important to us. Um, I will say that that has been incredible as a focusing tool for us. Like now it's pretty easy to say like, oh, well, that doesn't line up to our outcome of the year. So tell me what you want to do with this. If this, does, this, this doesn't align up to our outcome. So. You actually answered my follow-up question as you were talking, which was like, you went through this training on Teresa Torres's Opportunity Solution Trees. What have you seen as a benefit after that training? And I love the picture that you're painting around alignment and being able to tie back to, hey, we're talking about doing this thing. It doesn't align with what we said we wanted to achieve and where we wanted to go as a company. And it forces that conversation do we really want to do that? Because it kind of deviates from where we're headed. And there, there should be a pretty darn good reason why we would want to deviate, right? I love that. The thing that I feel like I hear a lot, there are a million tools and a million methodologies and books and training. There's all kinds of stuff that you can consume in the world of product development. And I feel like a lot of times when I'm talking to folks, they've got a handful of things in their toolbox that work for them at their company. 
there is no silver bullet. It just doesn't exist. I also love how you talk about you guys as a company, and it sounds like this really starts from your CEO, so good on them. A company that's been around for 44 years, moving from analog to digital through the dot-com bust in the early 2000s, that's pretty compelling because like this idea that, no, we're going to figure out a way to continue to skate to where the puck's going to be, and we're going to head in that direction, and we're going to go learn the things that we need to learn, and we're going to go try the things that we need to experiment with and figure out a way to get there. I think a lot of companies talk about doing that and don't always maybe put their money where their mouth is or their attention where it should be. That's really cool to hear. And Caitlin, to think about, you know, you coming from traditional marketing, moving into product marketing, now moving into product management, having that wide view into the company and into the market is, uh, I'm sure it's really advantageous for you jumping into product management now. I'm curious, there's probably only so many agents in the country. I think when we were talking at industry, a little north of 2 million, did I catch that right? Yeah, that's right. In terms of those that are, you can be an unlicensed agent, but licensed agent. Part of an association of some kind. And what's the range on, how, what's the smallest association, roughly one person that's associated with it, that it has an association up to, I don't know, 5,000? Is it a pretty big gap as far as variance? What is it, Caitlin? What's the smallest one? Smallest MLS? Yeah. I don't know which one's the smallest, but I know we have some that are in, you know, the couple hundreds, where then we have other MLS customers, like in Arizona, for example, one of our largest customers, they have 40,000 plus members. Oh, my. So it's all just dependent on kind of your location and, and how that regionalization kind of happens, too. That's right, because you were saying at the beginning of our chat that some of them organize around maybe a city, some of them might be statewide. That's a good point. But man, a couple hundred to 40,000, that's a pretty big gap. So the market for this, like I think about like total addressable market is relatively small, but there's only a couple of other competitors in the market place with you guys, right? You're in kind of the top three with a couple others, roughly speaking, as far as size and the and even the gap between maybe the number one slot and the number three slot is pretty large. Like they're very, very large and probably have a host of other offerings more than just serving the MLS side of things. Yeah, I would say that's one area where I think we kind of shine there a little bit where there are, you know, three bigger players in the nation. But, you know, every day our company and we're an employee owned company, like we're focused on MLS every day where I kind of like to make the comparison to, you know, two of our competitors, perhaps to like think of banking, you go to your banking site, you can do a drop down and you could do checkings or savings or, you know, the bajillion other offerings and areas of what they're focused on where MLS is part of that experience, part of one of their offerings, but they have all these other revenue streams and areas as well. So I think that's something that makes us stand out. And a big selling point for us is, you know, flex MLS, we're flexible. So we can customize a lot more and tailor the system per each of our customers to their local market, which I think really helps us stand out there too and provide a better product. Yeah, because you're making it, you're tailoring it to what they might need. And I would, I would imagine every MLS has some nuance to it. Does that have some supportability, maintainability challenges when you do that? Yeah, it's incredibly impactful for us right now. Customization is both a selling point and a problem. For us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you guys have like an upper and a lower bounds on those things? Like we will only customize up to a certain point or is it more important as a company to capture market share? 
and learning how to navigate that challenge of supportability? We definitely discuss with our customers, hey, there's different ways we could do this or we're, we're solutioning with them, but it's probably more important here and things like that. It's having the customer, like you mentioned, not a lot of customers in our in our situation, like a fixed number sort of. And then also the sales cycle is incredibly long and it's very costly, both in terms of time and actual costs in terms of the perception of their agents and brokers in an MLS to switch a system. It's an incredibly difficult transition. So the fact of having the customer is more important. That makes sense, especially with this idea of compelled use. Even if it's a little hard for some of the agents, if the association sees the benefit, then that's definitely going to be more compelling. Are there things about the way that you make decisions? So let's go back to the opportunity solution tree. When you're evaluating different opportunities that align with where you're headed as a customer, or I'm sorry, as a business, how does that individual customer, I'll say customization, play into some of those trade-off conversations? Do you guys have a framework or a philosophy for how you decide to make some of those trade-off conversations or decisions? Well, we've done it better and worse over the years, I think. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I guess is what I'll say. Yeah, I'm part of that team as well. (laughs) (laughs) Typically, our approach has been perfection. We want to sell for everybody. And it's very hard for us as an organization. It's very hard for us to say no to customers. I mean, it's hard for any organization, but, you know, we are really prideful in that. And so like that thing that's really hard for us. We've more recently, you know, with our modernization efforts, really have tried to get our teams internally to be okay with an 80% approach. Like we're going to solve for 80%. This is going to allow us to move in in a fast enough way that we can do a project in a reasonable time frame. It also, we have people that work on custom stuff. So it's, there's opportunity for customization later in the process as well. So it's a learning aspect. But I think we've started to talk, especially on my slide, about we're only going for an 80%. We don't need to solve every single edge case with this particular thing that we're doing. Let's get in the ballpark so we can adjust from there where we've started talking about. Ours has been the same on the search side. I think we're really focused on iterating a lot more than we used to, I would say, back in the day. So we're trying to quickly get things out there and then also learn with our customers. You know, maybe we introduce something and then we're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't quickly after that. And then we're continuing to iteratively make changes over time there just to deliver value quicker. Again, you often hear people talking about actually taking feedback, using it in their product, doing that rapid iteration. So I love hearing, you know, somebody actually doing it day to day. You talk about the 80% rule. Again, like a common theme, that's really hard to do. I've had so many conversations with folks that this almost this trite saying at this point that if you feel like it's perfect, you shipped it too late. Yeah. And forcing yourself to be okay with like it's 80% there. Ship it and let's learn. I love hearing that. It's something that I'm constantly trying to encourage even just our own employees, but definitely our customers to really think about it. And it's uncomfortable. I feel like it's more uncomfortable for companies that have existed prior to software because they're more used to a mature product that they're sending out to their customers. And when they try something new, 
it's hard. That's like this emotional, like my child is too young to go out and take a bike ride by themselves around the neighborhood. It's like, they'll be okay. They might fall, but they'll be okay. They'll make it home and we'll learn something from it. And it's really hard to do. So I love hearing that you guys are pushing your folks to get to that point because it's an emotional response. It's not a logical one, but you're trying to make a logical decision. It's hard. It's like, no, I spent so much time like making this thing awesome. Great. Send it. Well, I could finish up these three other things. Like, we don't have time. Ship it. Let's go learn. I love that. Okay. So as we wrap up here, I'd love to get just a quick piece of advice that you would give an aspiring product person. I'm going to say product person in the realm of either engineering, design, product management. As you think back on your career, what's the one thing that you would tell them that they should think about now? They're embarking on this journey. I mean, obviously, I did the career change. I thought I was going to be in marketing forever. I actually started out as a graphic designer, went into marketing. And then, I don't know, part of me just would say to follow your passions there. Like for me, I loved marketing, always enjoyed it, but it felt like something was missing. And what I realized after working closely with other people is just kind of pay attention to who you're working with. And those positions, like if you're intrigued and you think maybe something is missing, you don't feel as fulfilled in what you're doing have conversations with people in realms that you're interested in. So like for myself, when I was in product marketing, I got close with our product managers. And for me, it was a lot of just like asking them a ton of questions. I would say I'm kind of a lifelong learner. So maybe my answer would be like continuously learning and educating yourself until you're aligned with your passions. But I just kind of have the mindset of everything is figure outable. So that's kind of something that I live by a little bit there where I had no idea how to get started in trying to get into product management, but I just had conversations with people in those positions to learn and then continue to self-educate and do what I could and just kind of go from there until until I got in. So continuously learning everything and asking tons of questions. Tracy knows I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I would say that all these methods and frameworks, things that you'll learn about product and right ways to do it, like there's no right way. It's also not rocket science. If you are a deep and critical thinker, you want to ask questions, you can be radical, like be the person in the room that's saying something different than somebody else or pushing something. I think you're great for product, like a great position for you to be in in the organization. And that type of stuff will typically be rewarded. So there's lots of places to learn. You can definitely read all of the stuff and read the books and they're all super helpful, but they're not religion either. And none of them are a solution for everything. You can definitely do it as long as you are critical thinker, ask questions, can be the person in the room that's pushing something that's not necessarily the group consensus, pushing people beyond. Yeah, that's such a great reminder. I love that you put it. It's not religion. And there are hills that people die on. And it's taking a toolbox approach, not bringing a hammer to every situation. Both of those great advice, great reminders. I appreciate you both for spending some time with me talking about your experiences and kind of the journey that you've both individually been on and the journey with FBS and this mark that you serve. Lots of insights here. So I appreciate it so much. Yeah, I just wanted to say I didn't get to say it anywhere, but I think it's really interesting. Everybody is going to have a legacy problem. Like people think legacy is boring. People think it's like something you forget about. Like you don't think this is a problem you're going to have. But if you're not getting rid of features in your product, if your company is 
successful enough to last this long, you will have this problem. So it's you don't have somebody dedicated to getting rid of things or sunsetting things or streamlining or moving to new platforms, migration, you're going to have a legacy problem too. Like we're successful. This is why we are here. That is so true. And what a way to end the show on. <laughs> oh my, that is some truth. <laughs> Thank you, Tracy, for that last little nugget. You're right. And it really is kind of a double-edged sword in that if you're dealing with a legacy problem, you've succeeded in some way. Such a good point. Thank you for that. And I hope to see you both at industry next year. Yeah, absolutely. You guys can think you're going to go again? Yeah, I think I've convinced our org that it was. Uh, hopefully we'll get more people this time. Yeah, I hope so. Lots of friend making. Well, I appreciate you both so much. Thank you for carving out an hour for me. We will definitely have to talk soon. Thanks. Nice to meet you, Zach. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You as well. 